Well, we're starting a new series today, and I'm very excited about this series. The series title and my sermon title this morning is one and the same, and it's called Restoring the Image of God. Restoring the Image of God. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Now, over the years, we've developed many different pictures of God. And generally speaking, it's not always a picture of somebody who's a rewarder. In fact, in a lot of church circles, religion has created an image of God who sits constantly on a judgment seat, and he's ready to judge us for every little thing we do wrong. Isn't it interesting that the Bible presents an image of God And God says it's impossible to please him unless we believe he is and believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You see, to believe anything less about God is an insult to God. And isn't it amazing how the demon of religiosity puts God perpetually on a judgment seat so that people are always intimidated, afraid of God, and the first thing they want to do is run from him rather than run to him. You see, if your image of God is an image of a God who is a rewarder, then you want to run to him. But if your image of God is an image of someone who's constantly going to knit and judge you, you want to run from him. So I want to ask you a question. Which advertising agency would promote the image of a harsh, hard, judging God? The advertising agency of heaven or the advertising agency of hell? You see, the enemy constantly wants to throw up on the image of God. He wants to distort your picture of who God is so that rather than running to him, you want to run from him. Can I get an agreement? You know, it's very interesting that somehow Christians have read the synopsis of the Old Testament, and we breeze through it without any deep analytical thought or really searching the intent of what the scriptures are saying, and we've come to a conclusion that the God of the Old Testament is an angry God, a judgment God, a God who is full of judgment and ready to punish. And it amazes me how these Images, threads of pictures come to our imagination that are not a true reflection of who God is. 
In fact, the reality is that as you study the Old Testament, and this is one of the reasons why I love teaching in Bible school, because it gives me the opportunity to go deep, to spend time with the students and reveal the true nature and the heart of God. But as you really look at the Old Testament, it is not in contradiction that David says, God, you are slow to anger. And yet, many people's concept of God from the Old Testament is that he's quick to anger. But what people don't realize is that before God ever judged a people group or a nation, oftentimes his grace prevailed with them for a hundred years while he continued to warn them and woo them and exhort them to turn from their stubborn rebellion and to come to him. And we lose this dynamics of time as we flip from one page to the next. And so we inadvertently allow from our own perceptions and our own experiences wrong or false images of God to be overlaid onto the true image of God. You see... God said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Another way of saying that is, I'm the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Never ceases to amaze me how in the Bible, the only time God sits on a judgment seat in the whole Bible the only time God is ever pictured on a judgment seat is at the end of the age, the end of the time of all humanity. And for one moment, he judges between those whose names are written in the book of life and those who are not. Do you know that in the Old Testament, when God spoke to Moses and he said, I want you to create a tabernacle, a moving temple, a portable temple. Now, I want you to follow all of my instructions because everything I'm telling you to do and to make is a pattern of the reality in heaven. And then he lays out this plan to Moses, and Moses builds the outer court. Then he builds the holy place, and then he builds the holy of holies, which was meant to house the very presence of God. And God says, now this room is really special. Only the high priest could come in and once a year. And I want you to build a, an ark of a covenant. This represents my covenant with mankind. I want you to make it of acacia wood. I want you then to melt gold and overlay it with gold. I want you to put a lid on it. And on that lid, I want you to fashion two statues of angels hovering over my throne. And then build my throne. And you know what the throne is called? The mercy seat. This, story, this series is called Restoring the Image of God. Because from the Garden of Eden, if Satan had one objective, it was to distort 
the image of God in the mind and the understanding of men's hearts. Can I get an agreement? And so, if I were to pick one scripture that would be the basis to the whole series, it's this. Without faith. What is faith? When you have faith in yourself, it's because you have a picture of yourself that is competent. And it generates confidence. It's faith. When you have confidence in yourself, you have faith in yourself. And that comes from a picture of competence, not incompetence. What is faith? Faith is a competent picture of God. Faith is a picture of who God is. And that's why God says without faith. It's impossible to please him. How many of you would be thrilled with your best friend if they always saw you as a low, uh, downright, snotty, rotten, unfaithful, miserable piece of humanity? How many of you would just be enamored with a friend who has that picture of you? I don't think so, right? Without faith, Without a picture of great confidence of God, it's impossible to please him. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he is. And the devil wants to add to that phrase on a regular basis. God is mean. God is angry. God is prejudiced. God will do it for Mary, but he won't do it for Jonathan. The Bible says you must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder. It is the nature of God to reward. Isn't it amazing how religion has fostered an image of God that wants to judge us, and yet the Bible says that the image of God should be in our mind and in our imagination an image of a person who wants to reward. He is enthusiastically, exuberantly about blessing us. Praise God. I hope you're getting as excited as I am. But if you're not there yet, I intend to get you there. How many of you are ready to come with me? All right. I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 because everything starts in the beginning. Every major doctrine starts in the book of beginnings. And it's amazing that every major doctrine of the Christian faith not only has its origin in Genesis, it has its conclusion or its totality in the book of Revelation. And you will find the doctrines of God woven mysteriously, hidden through all the books of the Bible. And so we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Now, I shared on this here a couple of months ago in one of my other sermon series that 
Here the word God in the Hebrew is Elohim. And Elohim is a compound plural, plurality. Okay? And so God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, I want to take a moment to lay a foundation. In fact, during this whole sermon, I'm going to be laying a foundation for progressive revelation that will come out of the Word of God. Not revelation that's new ideas, no. Progressive, we're going to build line upon line, precept upon precept, but always from the Word of God. It is written. And anything that isn't written isn't legitimate. And so I want to take a moment to elaborate on this verse and some of the words in this verse. And the first thing I want to point out is God says, let us make man in our image. Now, you know, I often like to go in the Old Testament. I go to the original words in the Hebrew and then in the New Testament, I go to the original word in the Greek manuscripts. And so we're going to look at this word image. And if we, when we put it up on the screen, you'll see the word image has a reference number in Hebrew, number 6754. That reference number correlates to the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. And it lists every word in the Hebrew manuscripts and then gives it a number. And then you look up that number and you'll see what that word literally means. And then it does the same with the Greek as well. And it says here that the word image in the Hebrew is teslem, teslem. And it literally means image. But as you continue to read it says that it is from an unused root word meaning shade. Image, shade. It almost seems like for a moment that there's no connection between the two. But I want to make a personal note to you. I want you to understand something. Shade is always the shadow of an object. You can't have shade unless there's an object. And shade is always the shadow of an object, i.e., be it a tree, the shade of a tree is there because of the tree. The shade of a house is there because there is a house. Therefore, shade always has the resemblance of the object that has cast the shadow. So God has created us in his shade. He has created us in his image. He is the object and we become a shade or a shadow, an image of who he is. Yeah, I like it. 
A shadow is never the exact representation of the object, but it is always in the similitude of the object. What are we saying? God didn't create man to be a God. God created man to reflect God. The second definition that's given in the Strong's is a representative. Image means one who is a representative of. A representative figure is meant to represent the authority that sent it. Even in this world, in the context of life as we know it, a representative is a sent person and they represent the authority who sent them. And so when God created man, he created man to be a representation of who he is. He is the authority. We are sent in his authority. But man was destined, man was designed to be a representation of God. Having said that, Opening our understanding to these thoughts. When God ordained that man would be created in his image, that became a principle. When God said, let us make man in our image, it became a universal principle that as man gives birth to mankind. Man was destined to be created and procreated continually in the image, in the representation of God. You see, there's an interesting point in Genesis chapter 1. As God creates the birds of the air, the the uh, fish of the sea, the mammals that walk on land, as he creates the fruit trees and the vegetation and all the different types of life, after each act of creation, he said, and let them reproduce after their kind. That's a phenomenon that biology will back up. A cow cannot mate with a giraffe and create a cow raft. <laughs> within a species, within a kind, there can be re, uh, uh, um, creation. There can be procreation. There you go. There can be procreation, but always within that kind. Why? The principle of God is that this kind will reproduce after this kind. When God said, let us make man in our image, he didn't say, let's make cows to represent us. He created a divine principle. And the principle is that man was destined to be a shadow of the image of the one who cast it. 
Man was meant to be one who comes in the authority of the one who sent him. He is always and was always in God's plan of destinies. Man was always meant to be a representation of the goodness and the fullness and the glory of who God is. Now this is a very important principle because I'm going to keep building this principle and I want you to stay with me because it comes to an amazing conclusion. The principle is that man will be a reflection of God. He will be crowned with his glory, God's glory, and he will be crowned with God's honor. He's fashioned in the similitude of God. In Psalm chapter 8 verse 1, we see this principle at work. David writes in verse 1, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. What does that mean? The constellations reflect the magnitude of God. Science is still bewildered at the size of the universe. Why? Because God is unlimited. The heavens declare the glory of God. They reveal, they reflect, they are representative of how creative, how massive, how awesome, how big, how deep, how wide God is. Hallelujah. In verse 3 to verse 8, David continues to write, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you would care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and yet, you crown them with glory and honor. You made them the rulers over the works of your hand. The heavens, the magnitude of it, the earth with its glorious mountains and slopes, the rivers and the waterfalls and the oceans, the parrots, the birds, all your glory is seen in creation. In Romans, we see that Paul says that we see God in creation. It reflects the glory, the greatness of his imagination. I mean, how many of you could come up with as many ideas of living forms of life as exist on earth? Nature reflects the magnitude, the greatness, the awesomeness, the diversity of God. And when you look into the, bio the biology uh, and the structure and the molecular structure and the intricate information in DNA harnessed in each genome of every living being, you can only say, wow. 
God is incredible. And yet, after God created a world filled with his glory, he took his glory and his honor and he put it on humanity. And he said, I have ordained that you will be cast in my image and you will be a reflection of me and you will be representative of me and I will make you the ruler of the earth. And so David is pondering these things and he says, you've made man a little lower than angels and yet you crowned them with glory and honor. You made them to be rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. The flocks, the herds, the animals, the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and all that swim, the paths of the sea. Very interesting. There are many hidden scientific truths written in the word of God. Did you know that the ocean is filled with streams and currents, paths? And sea life will get into the streams and the, the paths that flow through the ocean. And David supernaturally probably didn't even understand it analytically with his mind. But he pens these words. All the fish in the sea that swim the path. Of the sea. You see, what I'm talking about is a principle. Man was created to reflect the glorious image of God. God created man in his image so that as mankind interacted with each other, they would reflect the image or the picture of a perfect God to one another. If we could imagine a world without sin, if we could imagine a world filled with an, without a fallen nature, if we could imagine every man and every woman, every people group filled with love and kindness and generosity, acts of, of, hero, of heroism, Acts of kindness, acts of benevolence, acts of charity. If man could be all the time and only a reflection of God, as we interact with each other, we would constantly taste and experience the awesomeness of God. This was God's design. This is what God intended because he created a principle that man would always reflect and cast the image of God. A principle can't be changed. If you understand what a principle is, the nature of a principle is something that it is a universal principle. It cannot be broken, it cannot be changed. It can be misused, but the principle itself is eternal. 
You can use a principle for noble purposes or ignoble purposes, but the principle itself can't be changed. God ordained that H2O water could manifest as a liquid, and he would spread it across the face of the earth, and life would break forth. But water can also be used in a negative way. It can be used by devious entities to take life. God ordained that H2O could be a solid. And as a solid, it preserves food, it preserves uh, meat, it preserves and it cools and it refreshes but then it could also be used to bring devastation to a landscape and it could be used for harmful things. God designed that H2O by his principle could also be esteem and with it you could power generators and power a city and give light. But steam could also literally cause your skin to be peeled off your bones. The point is that a principle is universally and always true. It is eternal. But a principle can be used for noble things or ignoble things. The laws, the principles of aerodynamics harnessed and understood become useful to cause men to fly. And we could fly around the world bringing the gospel of peace, bringing the gospel of joy, bringing people to the revelation of Christ. The principles of flight will be used in a few weeks to take our shoe boxes and take gifts to kids in third world countries so that they will experience things they never would have imagined. But the principles of aerodynamics and gravity combined that make the principles of flight can also be used for war and can be used for the devastation and the bombardment of whole cities. And it has the potential to wipe out a complete populace. As we've seen in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, the point is that principles are eternal things. And so God had determined that man would always reflect the image of God. From the Garden of Eden, Satan had determined that he wanted to misrepresent the image of God. And so he started to sell some lies to Adam and to Eve. And he started to paint a picture of God that was totally fabricated, diabolically untrue. But Satan's goal was far more reaching than just touching one man and one woman and for one moment distorting their picture of God. You see, he understood the principle that man is created to reflect God. And man was created in the image of God. And if he can distort the image of man, 
if he could pervert who man is meant to be because of this divine principle rather than man reflecting the glory of God, fallen man would project his brokenness onto the image of God. And understanding this principle, he set about a tactical scheme to bring down mankind to fall so that their nature would become twisted and perverted and distorted like himself, the devil. So that the principle of reflection would be used to distort the image of God. Instead of Man's interaction with man, revealing the beauty, the harmony, the love, the unity of God. We have a fallen creation, and we have borne the likeness of the one who fell. And so man's interaction with man brings rejection, disappointment, bitter wounds and hurts. It brings the fear of unfaithfulness. You see, that serpent has been biting the heels of all of Adam and Eve's seed since the beginning. And so, as we, in our brokenness, try to have relationship, and out of our brokenness we wound each other, There is an eternal principle that man was destined to be in the image of God and the enemy knows that as one person after another disappoints you, lets you down, deserts you, uh, mistreats you, it casts an image over the image of God. This is why God says in the Ten Commandments, honor your mother and your father. Not because they'll always be right. Not because they'll always do the right thing. Not because they will always act the right way. But because of the destiny of man was to reflect the image of God. When we allow, because of a parent's behavior, when we allow honor to be lost, we project that loss of honor onto the image of Father God. God doesn't say honor your mother and your father because they're always right. Now when my father and my mother taught me this principle, they added honor your father and your mother because we're always right. God didn't say that. You see, what happens as man interacts with man, we besmudge the image of God. And God's saying, I want you to protect that office. While I'm not asking you to condone everything they've done or said, forgive them and Honor the office or otherwise you will dishonor my face. It's powerful preaching. 
If you were to turn to the very last chapter of the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, God says something very deep, which most of us miss in translation. And in the very last few verses of the last chapter of Malachi, God says, Now I'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers, or else I will strike the land with a curse. You see, man was cast to reflect the image of God, and God says, there needs to be a healing of hearts so that there can be a healing of imagery, so that there can be a healing of relationship. This issue and this point is so important that because of sin, we have borne the likeness of the first Adam. Jesus came to restore us back into the image of God. How many of you know Jesus came to restore you back into the image of God? In Romans chapter 5, verse 19, it says, For just as the disobedience of the one man the first Adam, the many were made sinners. In Bible school, I take this word, and in the Hebrew, it's the word kathistame. And it literally means that the divine appointment, the constitution, the DNA of who man was destined to be became changed. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made. Constitutionally, they were changed. They were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, that's the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the many will be reconstituted into righteousness. Amen. So all of humanity, man's inhumanity to man causes countless millions to mourn. But worse than that, man's inhumanity to man causes countless millions to doubt. Jesus came to restore the image of God. Jesus came to restore the image of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, this is what the Bible says about the sun. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You see, when God created the first Adam, he looked like the last Adam. He was a representation of God's glory and God's honor. 
He was brilliant. He shone with light. Jesus talks about the restoration of all things that will take place at the end of the age. And Paul says that in the end, our physical bodies will be raised and what was sown corruptible will be raised incorruptible. And the Bible teaches that in the new life, we will have a renewed body and we will bear the likeness of Jesus' glorified body when he rose from the dead. You see, we have fallen from the image that God created us to be in and we were destined to always reflect the image and the glory and the goodness and the greatness and the wow of God. But now humanity often reflects the ugliness of Satan. So God sent the last Adam himself come in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing that was created was created without him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and he was the light of the world. That's why Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus Christ, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of who God is. Let me, let me prove this to you. Let me take this further. In John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus was talking and he said, Verily, verily, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does. He came to be in the image of the father. He came to be the representative of the father. And so Jesus says that I can only do what I see my father doing. Do you know that your destiny is to do what your father does. From the beginning, before the fall, God had ordained that man would be his representative. He would be the image cast in his likeness. And while we would never be God, we would be representations of God on earth. Hallelujah. What an amazing destiny God had planned for us. And Jesus says to those who are listening, he says, the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. He came to reflect God. And when you read through the gospel pages, everything adorable, everything wonderful, everything magnificent, everything wonderful about Jesus is a reflection of who God is. God sent his son to restore the image of who he is. Hallelujah. In John chapter 12, verse 49 to 50, Jesus says this, I did not speak on my own, but the father who sent me commanded to say all that I have spoken. I know that this command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. As the exact representation of God, there isn't one thing that Jesus said that God doesn't say. Think about it. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the word was God. And nothing that created was created without him. The word of God can never be in contradiction to God. And so Jesus says, I only say what I heard my father say. I only say what I heard my father say. The word could never be in contradiction to God. Can I ask you a question? How many times do you read through the Gospels? Jesus said, be healed. How many times do you read that? A lot. How many times do you read through the Gospels, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven? A lot. Remember, the Son is the exact representation of the Father. And he only does what he saw his Father do, and he can only say what he heard his Father say. So now let me ask you this question. In the Gospels, how many times do you hear Jesus say, sorry, I'm not going to heal you? And how many times do you hear Jesus say, yeah, I see your tears and I know you're repenting, but sorry, I'm not going to forgive you. Jesus came to restore the image of God because fallen and broken humanity has obscured and projected a broken image onto the image of God. And we see God through our brokenness and through the brokenness of relationships we've had with other people. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip says, uh, hang on a second. Run that by me again. Lord, just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. This principle is so important that Jesus actually got upset with Philip. He said, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you get it? I am the exact representation of the Father. Everything you've watched me do. Remember when you were in the boat and the storm was raging and all of you experienced fishermen from your years of experience, you saw your destiny. You're gonna die. And I, as a reflection of God, spoke to the wind and to the waves. When you see me, you see God. You remember when the Pharisees were rubbing their hands together and they brought me that woman, her clothes all torn, covered in dust, and worse than that, covered in shame and condemnation. And they said she was caught in the act of adultery. Interesting. 
Where was the guy? And when you saw me, look at her with compassion. And I wrote in the sand, and one by one her accusers left because with a word of knowledge I started to write the secret sins of their hearts. And I looked at this woman and I said, where are your accusers? And when she said, they're gone, I said, then neither do I confuse you, accuse you. He's painting the image of God. Who's the accuser of the brethren? Who's the lifter of our head? He says, Philip, when I was lifting that woman out of the shame, when I was lifting her out of the past possible child molestation and abuse, when I was lifting her out of the judgment of humanity, you saw God. When I turned to her and I said, I don't condemn you, now woman, go and sin no more. You saw the heart of a father. When you gathered around me and there was a blind man and you said, uh, who sinned, the father or the mother, that he was born blind? And I said, neither. This is so that the glory of God can be revealed. Did I walk away and leave him in his blindness because that's to the glory of God? Or did I reach out my hand and open his eyes because the glory of God is revealed in living. The glory of God is revealed in healing. The glory of God is revealed in restoring. The glory of God is revealed in resurrection. Philip, don't you get it? All this time you have seen me. You have seen the Father. Anyone, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. So if Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, and everything Jesus said, he said what he heard the Father say. And everything Jesus did, he did what he saw the Father do. Show me the person who came to God genuinely, Jesus said, sorry, I don't want to know you. Show me the person who came to him wanting healing. And Jesus said, sorry, it's for them, but not for you. He came to restore us back into the image of God, and he came to restore the image of God back into our understanding. Praise God. At the conclusion of his ministry, Jesus is praying, and it's recorded in John chapter 15, 16, 17, his conversation with the Father. 
And in John chapter 17, verse 6, and also verse 26, he's talking to his father and he says, I have revealed you. He didn't say, I told them about you. He said, I became the expression of you. I've revealed you. It's one thing for me to tell you about someone, but to reveal them is to be them in transparency. And he says, Father, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me from out of this world. They were yours. You gave them to me. You entrusted me with them. And they have obeyed your word. Verse 26. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me will be in them. It'll be a revelation in them and they'll know. And that I myself may be in them. You see, I really believe that the greatest honor that God has given me is to live a life of a calling, of revealing my Father. Sometimes Lynn says to me, Pastor, you personally laid hands on the sick so much more in the past. I'm going to answer your question. I've had tremendous healings in my life, and I've seen tremendous healings take place when I pray for people. But there is an issue in our human hearts that sometimes instead of seeing the reflection of how great God is, we use the ability to reflect him, to direct attention to us. One of the things I enjoy about Bible college is that I'm training believers to be a reflection of who God is. And I'm constantly teaching them, you can do this. You can get a word of knowledge. You can prophesy. You can heal the sick in Jesus' name. I'm not trying to build the image of Rob Scarello. I'm trying to build the image of the Father. Hello? And sometimes we use evangelism in a way that we become the lone ranger. And I have all the gifts, and the more you pay attention to me, the more you receive from me and absolutely are dependent on me. And now I have stood in the way of the glory of God. You see, lately I've been hearing testimonies of healing in this church, some phenomenal testimonies. And I had nothing to do with praying for that person. I had everything to do with teaching and preaching, but I'm in the back, see, I'm in the wings, and I get so excited because we were never meant to obstruct the light of his glory. We were meant to reflect the light 
of his glory. And so as I hear people are getting healed in the church, and there's been quite a few of late, and others have prayed for them, I get excited, Pastor Jan, because everything in about us should be about pointing the church and the world to him. Do you understand that God created man, and when he did, he set a destiny in motion, and it is a principle that man created in his image, not fallen man. They lost the image of God. But everyone who is born again into the last act is born again into the image of God. And the destiny and the principle is that our lives will reflect the greatness of God. When you start to understand the inner thinking and workings of God's heart, then when Jesus said to his disciples, you shall be witnesses of me. Lay hands on the sick and heal them. Cast out devils and set the captives free. He's telling us, to reflect the glory, the majesty, and the greatness of who God is. What I believe God is going to do during this series is that God's going to start to unlock moments in your life. And as I teach over the next few weeks, it's not necessarily the revelation that I will bring to you, but it is the revelation the Holy Spirit will bring to a moment in time in your childhood where you had an interaction with a broken human being and you came to a conclusion and a judgment that without you realizing has been a subliminal reflection on the image of God. And it's been a stopping point. It's been a, a foothold that became a stronghold that God is going to break the hold over. Amen. And so when I say the the title of this story, this series is called Restoring the Image of God. It's not that God's image needs to be fixed up. We're not re-chiseling the statue of David, so to speak. We are restoring the image of God in our understanding and in our opinions and in our judgments. Because you will only see God as big as the image of him that you can cast. Come on, stand with me. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to get personal with you. And I will share stories that God has revealed to me from my childhood where at a moment of interaction with other humans, 
I came to a judgment and a wrong conclusion. And how the Holy Spirit revealed to me that I cast that image, I overlaid that image onto the image of God and how it has held me, limited me, bound me from the fullness of God. You see, I believe that as the image of God is restored back into our soul, the fullness of God will more quickly become our experience. Amen. Amen. Isn't it amazing how the devil will take divine principles that had noble purposes and he will distort them, he will twist them to use them for unnoble purposes. We were always meant to be reflections of the greatness of God. And unfortunately, fallen man has reflected broken images in every one of us. Every one of us have been scarred and obscured by those experiences it has obscured our vision of the incredible totality of who God really is. And the Holy Spirit, and I believe this with all my heart, the Holy Spirit, as I remember the most, and they have a sad note to them, those are usually places where we came to a judgment and a conclusion and it became a marker in our lives, but it detracted from the image of God. You see, Satan from the Garden of Eden has always been out to mar the image of who God is. And you know, if your image of God is faulty and you're destined to be in the image of God, you will never rise to your own full potential until the image of who he is is restored. And sometimes to do that, we have to recognize that moment, that time, that place, that judgment, and we have to recognize it was wrong and repent of the judgment so that we could be set free from the sentence. With every judgment, there's a sentence. And sometimes we make judgments that sentence us. And God wants to set us free from the judgments that have sentenced us. Amen. Praise God. How many of you are looking forward to this series? More than that, more than that, because that could cast the attention on me. So more than that, let's get this focused more accurately. How many of you are looking forward to what the Holy Spirit is going to show you? <laughs> Ryan, I can honestly say 
and this comes up in the prayer meetings often. My greatest desire for revival is not to put this church on the map. You know, in genuine revivals, great moves of God, people come from around the world. It's not to put this church on the map. It's not so that more people will hear me or see me. I have some friends who are constantly trying to, and they're watching, tutor me so that more people can hear me and see me. My desire is that more people will see God clearly. Amen. Amen. And so my greatest desire for a move of God is because I want the lost to be delivered from the lies that Satan has painted so that they will see the glory and the goodness of God so that they will know him as he is and live in relationship with him without the atrocities of human interaction being cast on the image of God. My greatest desire for revival is so that God will get the glory and the acknowledgement that he deserves and that all of humanity will be set free from the powers of darkness and demons who are nothing but jealous and vengeful, prideful entities who seek everyone's destruction at the hope of their own personal gain. My hope is that humanity will be set free from the delusion of hell so that they could come into glory of heaven. Amen. 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 I want you to do this because this is a different kind of sermon series. I want every one of you to be part of this sermon series because God's going to be writing a series that is tailored straight to Ryan. And it's going to go all through your life and cover every major point of experience. And so this sermon isn't so much what pastor is going to reveal, but what the Holy Spirit will reveal to each and every one of you. And so I want you to be part of this sermon preparation. And the best way you can do that is by praying all through this series, Holy Spirit, search my heart. And everywhere that the enemy has put a stumbling block, to the image of God. I want to be released from the wrong judgments I came to. I want to know Him. I want to know Him in the glory of His power and in the beauty of His heart. I want to know you, God, not through the eyes of broken humanity. But I want to know you through the eyes of your son, Jesus Christ. And I believe that as each and every one of us pray that, I believe you will have encounters. I believe God told me that. You will have encounters with the Holy Spirit. And he will start to zone in on moments where the enemy put his finger in your life to scar you for life. And the Son of God will come 
with healing in his wings. Jesus said, for this purpose was the Son of God made manifest to destroy the works of the evil one. He picked up the scroll of Isaiah and read a prophecy about himself, and he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to set at liberty those that have been bruised. Amen. Father, I thank you for the honor of revealing your glory. I thank you that you've called me to a life to speak about you. And we as a church, as a people, as a group, as individuals, we pray, Holy Spirit, come and take the lies of the enemy out of our history, out of our projections, and help us to see, to repent, to turn away from, so that we could see the fullness of the glory of God. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. If you have never asked Jesus Christ into your heart, it all starts there. If you've slipped away, you were born again, but you backslid, then today's the day to let him in your heart. Very quickly, while every eye is closed, if you want to accept Christ as your Savior, if you want to come back to the Father, quickly, raise your hand. Come on. Raise your hand. Say, that's me. I want to know him. I want to know him. I want Christ to come into my life. That's you. Raise your hand. And Father, I thank you for this congregation, for those who are watching by live stream, those that raise their hands. Touch them now. See their heart. I release them from sin. And I release them into salvation. I thank you, Dad. You got us on a journey, and we're looking forward to it. To God be the glory. And everybody said, amen. amen. Come on. Turn around, give someone a high five, give them a hug, greet each other, bless each other. Have an awesome week. Have a great Thanksgiving, and we'll see you.